Amen. Would you remain standing for the reading of God's word? Let's pray for the reading. Father, we ask now that you might open our eyes and soften our hearts, unstop our ears, and that we would hear, see, and understand your word. Father, that it would take root deep into our our lives and bring about the fruit you desire in our lives. Father, you would pull us down from our pride. You would make us aware of our errors. You would refresh us by the life-giving work of your spirit. Father, I pray that you would guard my mouth and you would allow us all to hear you and to see you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Continue to work through uh, our study in Corinthians. I'll be reading uh, just verses 12 to 23, I think is what's printed in the bulletin. But we'll work our way all through uh, 34 uh, in the text this morning. This is the word of God. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are found even to be misrepresenting God because we, are test- because we testified about God, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. The word of our Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for the preaching God's word. Father, if my words are true to your word, may they be taken to heart. But if my words stray from yours, may they be quickly forgotten. Pray this in the name and in the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, what would you say to treasure seekers looking for the lost gold from the mythical ship, the Argo? You know, the one sailed by Jason and the Argonauts, built with help from the Greek gods. Wouldn't join that venture? What if flyers were printed, flashy ones? What if monies were collected and plans and routes were researched? And all the while you're wondering, wait, did you say the mythical ship, Argo? As in the mythical ship that doesn't exist? Your questions don't seem to bother the treasure seekers. They seem to think it doesn't matter whether a ship is mythical or real. And they assure you, you can still look for it. You can still seek treasure. 
you're not so sure. You may be scratching your head and wondering, how could anyone think like that? And yet it seems to be exactly what was going on in Corinth. In our text this morning, Paul is dealing with a group of people that deny the resurrection. They are assembling with uh, the believers. They consider themselves believers. and, And it appears that they ascend to faith in Jesus Christ. But they deny the resurrection. Now, we don't get a full picture of exactly what they do and don't believe about life after death. But we do know that somehow they rejected the resurrection. And they don't see any problem with that inconsistency in their faith, their belief system, and also in their Christian life. And Paul begs to differ. In our text this morning, he'll show us the impact that the resurrection really has. If it's a myth, the things that we would lose. And if it's real, then what does it require of us? What does it empower in us? Simply stated, Paul's going to make the point that because the resurrection is real, we must let its impact or its reality impact our lives. I've briefly mentioned we don't know exactly the full theological position regarding the resurrection of, uh, of the audience that Paul is referring to or addressing. It may be that they would have followed the Greek notion that was in vogue at that time uh, that really held to only the eternality of an immortal soul a soul that's finally released from what they called the prison of the body. They may have also followed some in the Jewish tradition, the Sadducees. I always remember they, were, they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Um, right? So, was that the first time some of you have heard that? How about that? So, but in any case, they were... Uh, swept away. See, this is what happens. You break away from your text and you just, you just lose it. So it's a good thing I've got it written down. So we don't know exactly where they were. And the reality is we may not suffer from this same theological delusion that they did. And if that's the case, then we're not really in the crosshairs of Paul's argument. Paul was speaking to a specific people about a specific theological error that they held. But I think that as we look at this text, we're going to see that many of the basic principles of both Paul's argument and his conclusions still find in us a ready audience. You can see in the text that Paul leaps from the starting block in verse 12. He says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? This is, there's no question as to Paul's intention. There are some with a false understanding. How can you say this? And, and more than simply wondering or thinking about these errors, they are speaking of them, and they're apparently teaching on them as well. Paul is determined to correct their error, and we'll see in the next few verses why Paul sees this error as so problematic. Verse 13 gives the first reason. Without a resurrection, not even Christ has been raised. Paul takes a simple approach here. If there is no such thing as resurrection, then Christ has not been raised either. At this point, Paul moves into kind of a logical or argument of logical progression. 
love New Testament scholar John Foreman. He notes, even a child can ask, what happens after that? And after that? And then after that? If you're a parent or if you've worked with children, you know the power of these series of questions. You know that after a few and after that, your crafted arguments, your reasons, they're usually spent and you're faced with actually thinking. Why is this important? What is the reason? What is behind this action? Sometimes, honestly, we just get frustrated with all of those questions. But if we would dive into them, we would hear the wisdom in, those, in that questioning. Maybe you've had the opportunity to use this approach with an unbelieving friend. When they make some statement about what they do or don't believe about God. I think God lets everyone go to heaven. And then instead of arguing with that, or instead of trying to prove the existence of God, you simply begin to ask questions. What would that look like? And then what? And then what? Working to encourage the person to make a logical connection about what they are saying, what they actually believe, and then how do they truly feel about those things. For Paul and his audience, he presses on with this line of argument in verse 14. If there's no resurrection, then Christ hasn't been raised. If he hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Paul uses the expression in vain 12 times in his letters. He's determined not to labor in vain. He's determined not to run in vain. And and Paul was very determined to finish the race well. There's a passage in Galatians chapter 2, verse 22, when early on in his walk, he met with the apostles and he set before him this gospel that he was proclaiming to run it by the apostles to ensure that it was theologically sound so that he would not be running in vain. As hard as it would be to preach in vain for Paul, he immediately puts something forward that's even more important. Not only is our preaching in vain, but your faith is in vain. This surely should have gotten their attention. The Greek word here, vain, carries with it the meaning of empty, like the coffee pots at the end of men's breakfast, Wednesday mornings at 6.30. Or Every now and then during the coffee hour, you press the center and nothing happens. Although, of course, in the fellowship hour, a host is ready with another full pot and your search is not in vain. But you know what it's like when things are empty, when they're hollow, when you have a hope and an expectation and there's nothing to fill it. To quote Leon Morris, if one's preaching is empty, then so is the faith it produces. If there is no resurrection, what are you hoping for? Paul could have immediately moved to a full and final result of no resurrection, which he will get to in verses 17 and 18. But first, he curiously backs off a little bit and presents another angle. If there is no resurrection, then we, among all the apostles, were all liars. That's the summary of verse 15. We have been testifying. And as a side Paul doesn't state this, but it's true. We are the ones who, in fact, have actually seen the risen Christ. 
And that's why we're misrepresenting God if we continue to speak of a resurrected Christ when there has been no such thing. Apparently, the group holding this view, while trying to make it seem like one could deny the resurrection and still uphold the apostles' teaching, still uphold the hope of the gospel. And Paul is declaring otherwise. The resurrection, that is the actual bodily, real resurrection is utterly foundational to the good news of the gospel. And Paul shows us why in verse 17. Here's where he returns to where he first left off. Your faith is futile. That's how he leads into that verse. And then he gives us the crushing truth. If Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. Romans chapter 4 verses 24 and 25 makes the connection here uh, that speaks to us that righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul is making the point that our justification that is our being declared in a legal sense declared as holy is because of the work of Christ rising from the dead. I really appreciated the way Pastor Lloyd mentioned last week. He asked the question, how does a prisoner know that his debt to society has been paid? He's released. And in the same way, we know that Christ has fully fully paid for the debt of our sins because the tomb is empty. He took our sins on the cross, and we know that they're paid in full, because he conquered death in the resurrection. Paul continues with this if-then argument. If there is no resurrection, then in verse 18, those who have fallen asleep have perished. Not only we in the present generation of believers, not only the future generation of Christ followers, but all the giants, all the saints of old, all who trusted in a coming one, the Redeemer of Israel, they have all simply and finally perished into nothing. It's into all of this despair, all of this loss, all of these stated consequences, if there is no resurrection to finally lead Paul to declare in verse 19, if in Christ we have only hope in this life, in other words, if there is no future hope, if all we can enjoy of Christ is what we've seen from the manger to the cross or to the full tomb, nothing more, no empty tomb, no promise of eternity, no truth of John 14 verses 1 and following, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. If you had no resurrection, if you had none of that Christ, then Paul says, we of all people are most to be pitied. The theologian Charles Hodge on verse 19 declares, if you take Christ from the Christian, you take their all, not only their source of their future, but of their present happiness. I wonder if 
if that's true of you. Is Christ your all? This past Friday, I had the honor of presiding over a memorial service for Carol Mason. And, uh, as, as the Masons and other family members would tell you, Christ was Carol's all. And her love for the Lord enabled and fueled her love for others and fueled her passion to serve her family and her patients all around her. There are others in our congregation who bear that similar beauty of Christ's stamp on their lives. Can you even imagine for a moment, what if none of this were true? What if there is no resurrection? Truly, we would be the chief of fools. But, Paul breaks off the presiding line of argument, and verse 20 serves as the pivot point in our text. No longer will Paul allow the thought of there being no resurrection. He's shown those untenable consequences. He's shown the strong connection between our faith, our hope, and even our joy, our future joy in the resurrection. And Paul immediately sets the record straight. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And instead of the negative consequences of no resurrection, Paul begins to share the resultant fruit of the reality of that resurrection. Of course, Christ himself is the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. But in Christ, we all so benefit. Paul's first argument is to show that close connection, the resulting blessings of the relationship, and he does this by making a comparison between Christ and Adam. Christ will be referred to as the last Adam a little bit later in this same chapter, but at this point, Paul is, in verse 21, is making the point that both in the death and the solution to death, that is the resurrection, they all come from a man. And in verse 22, he dives in a bit more and he explains that while everyone is in Adam, that's all of us who are in humanity, we're all in Adam and therefore we all experience death, those in Christ will be made alive again. Those in Adam are all of humanity, those in Christ a much smaller group of people. Paul still keeps a connection, an indivisible connection between Christ's resurrection and ours on this point. And New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner, he he states this or asks this question, what is the rationale underlying this connection? And then he answers it. He's saying it's the notion that believers are in Christ. If believers are in Christ, then his destiny is their destiny. Our destiny destiny is to be made alive because we are in Christ. This seems to be the summary of where Paul is heading. But first, it appears he wants to unpack that journey just a little bit. And along the way, we see the power of the resurrection and its implications for us. Notice in verse 23, each in his own order. Christ is the first fruits. Then at his coming are all those who belong to Christ. There is a temptation to want more from Paul. 
to push these next uh, or push into these next few verses a, a complete eschatological position and to work out our theology here. But that's not Paul's point. You can inform your theology from these verses, but Paul's not laying out his complete eschatological theology here. He's making the point of the reality of the resurrection. That is his principal argument here. And he works to that in verses 24 and 25 that fit into that purpose. Because when the end comes, Jesus is fully able and finally able, and he has now conquered every rule and every power and every authority. And in the context of our text, these are all things that are set against Christ. But a resurrected Christ is a conquering king. And verse 25 explains that Christ must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. A final picture of complete subjection. Until then, Christ, the conquering reigning king, sits at the right hand of the Father. And he is both a mediator and an intercessor between the heavenly Father and we, his children. And this ought to give us incredible confidence, knowing that the end is coming for all who oppose Christ. There have been times throughout the history of the church where Christians were heavily persecuted. Indeed, in places around the world, that's the case even this morning. Paul alludes to that in verse 32. He says, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fight with the beasts at Ephesus? Some have wondered, was Paul himself thrown into the lions? We don't know. We know he was harassed and harried and beaten near to the end of his life on multiple occasions. It could have been that he was thrown into the lions or to the beasts in Ephesus. He certainly would have known others that were. And his point is, his argument is, it is because of the truth of the resurrection. It is because Christ has conquered death, because I am no longer dead in my sins. It's because in Christ I will be made alive with him, because he will bring me to himself, even if I'm torn to pieces by the beast in Ephesus, or stoned to death, or shipwrecked, or whipped, or mocked and scorned and ridiculed by man. In any of those cases, I still gain because of the reality of the resurrection. You have nothing to lose in Christ. As you live for his glory, regardless of what man may do to you, you will gain. Take courage in the resurrection. When it's all done, when all enemies are subdued, when all those in Christ are resurrected, then Christ's work, as Hodge reminds us, as mediator is done. He says this, quote, He no longer needs to reign as mediator, but only as God. And therefore we read in verse 28 that he turns his rule over to the Father. And just when it seems that the argument is wrapped up, neat and tidy, And I'm ready to close in prayer. We come to verse 29. First, I'd like to say, Lloyd, thank you for this opportunity. I recalled Lloyd's phrase on a few uh, previous instances. He says, if only Paul would have given us a few more sentences. Honestly, here, initially, 
I would have been happy with a few less sentences. But seriously, what do we make sense of verse 29? Verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? First, I'll tell you what we don't do. We don't take a single passage and make a theological position and practice out of it, as the Latter-day Saints or the Mormons have on this passage and their proxy baptisms for the dead. The rule of biblical interpretation is to let the clear passages inform the obscure ones and not the other way around. Additionally, all of our significant beliefs and practices in our church, they're clearly seen in multiple places throughout the scriptures. Baptism, for instance, there are over 60 references to baptism in the New Testament. You develop a theological position by studying all 60 of those references. So we don't have proxy baptisms for the dead. And that's one of those things where if you have that conversation, just keep asking the what-ifs. Because baptizing for the dead in that sense has all sorts of other theological ideas behind it. So we know what we don't do, but now what do we do? Well, first, you may have noticed a shift in pronouns. The ESV uses the word people. That's because the word for baptized is in the third person. Now, all throughout this text, you can see it in the text as printed in your bulletin. It's very clearly seen in verses 12 through 19, where Paul is always speaking in the first and second person. He's saying, our preaching, we are even, we testified, your faith, you are still in your sins, we have hope, it's back and forth, it's me and you. Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth. And then in verse 29, he says, they baptized. The word for people is not actually in the Greek, The ESV, just trying to bring some clarity, speaks of it, people baptized. They're trying to capture Paul's intentional shift away from himself and from his immediate audience. And that's led many to believe that Paul is simply referring to a practice that some other group are doing. Some other group apart, perhaps, even from the Christian faith or on the fringe of the Christian faith. Now, admittedly, Paul's language is not a harsh rebuke of that practice, but it's not affirming of it either. The language is very neutral and apparently intentionally so, as if Paul is only using the idea. Those people, whoever they may be, actually believe in a resurrection. Otherwise, they wouldn't even do their practice, however misguided it may be. There are some other ideas on what this passage means, 40 of them, in fact. But this seems to be the simplest, most natural reading of the text. And we know from church history that small groups in the first and second century engaged in this practice for a short time. In verse 30, Paul continues this brief look back. It's almost like he's kind of saying, oh, one one more thing. Paul says, why are we in danger every hour? Implied, if there were no resurrection, why would we suffer all this danger? Why would we go through that? Verses 31 and 32 keep that same line of reasoning. 
all this danger, all this persecution, all the trouble that we willingly endure, it only makes sense if the resurrection is true. If that isn't true, then Paul advised what Leon Morris calls the easygoing proverb. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And again, for the second time, Paul changes gears. He uses the word but in verse 20, but here in verse 33, he gives a a command and an imperative. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And that's a proverb that every parent wants their child to know and take to heart as they head off on their first job or to college. Paul is connecting the point with his theological argument. Your theology, the things you believe about God and about Christ, they're not held in a vacuum. They actually affect your life. What you believe actually affects how you live your life. And so Paul makes the state, bad company affects your morals. It ruins them. The bad company that Paul's specifically referring to are those who deny the resurrection. And they're ruining other people by confusing them, by disrupting their hope in Christ. And so the only solution that Paul presents is in verse 34. Wake up. It's another imperative. It's another command. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For Paul, holding this dangerous theological or bad theology was actually sinful because this error denied the hope of the gospel. This error abolished the good news, and that in turn cancels the work of Christ on the cross and still leaves us in our sin. In all this, Paul is making the point that our theology, our right belief is critical but not simply in theoretical ways. Paul's right belief in a resurrected Christ is what gave him power and courage and confidence to, as he says, die daily to spread the good news. It gave him comfort and encouragement when he was rejected. It gave him strength and hope to press through. And unlike the treasure hunting of a mythical ship, which would be a folly of follies, The reality of a resurrected Christ who delivered us from our sins and has and will conquer all of his enemies is a truth that impacts our lives. Let's pray. Father, this was a lot to look at in a morning. And I pray that regardless of all that we have heard, we would retain the truth, but but Christ has been raised from the dead. Father, you have, in fact, conquered death. We grieve, yet not as those without hope. And I ask that you would work that truth deep into our lives, that we would find, in fact, we are living out that resultant fruit. We give you all thanks and praise. In Jesus' name.